On this week's show, spider webs. While your immune system is not so smart. Also, bees and resistant starch. I don't know what that means either. Let's do it. Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 113, recorded on Thursday, December 2nd, 2015. If you're one of the students in Dr. Domkey's class, I want to welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoy it. We kind of goof around a bit, talk a little bit of science, and uh, hope you stick around. Also, the listener demographic survey is officially closed. I know some of you are just so, so sad you didn't get a chance to or an opportunity to do it, but it's no more. Uh, thank you for all your responses. I'm going to put them up on the website. I've got some graphs and stuff. If that sort of thing interests you, go at it. Have fun. Uh couple interesting facts about it we have about two-thirds males one-third female that listen to the show almost everyone a vast majority is between 20 and 30 and then i would say about 90 percent are between 20 and 40 so it's kind of a younger listening group and most people are in undergraduate or graduate education at this point here but there's a smattering of everything across the board as well so uh from not even graduated high school to to uh phd uh md uh, uh or equivalent ev- education so um uh, the last thing is, if you sent me your address so that you could get fun swag, uh, it will be done. I, I have officially taken possession of the button-making machine, and I'm going to order those tattoos, temporary tattoos. So uh, don't hold your breath. They will get there, but you're just going to have to be a little patient. Things are busy right now. So that are the sh- that's the pre-show announcements. We are done speaking of such things. I have not introduced my co-host. I'm so sorry. We have Carolina Balkenbush. Auto registered dietitian, and if you're new to the show, she is taking her MCATs here shortly. So, uh, um, that that's going on. Hello, Carolina. Hello. <sighs> it's been so long. <laughs> I know. We just saw each other a few days ago. We did. Um, oh, we also have Christian Copley. So sorry, Christian Copley Salem, our PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Hello, Christian. Hello. Hello. My name is Scott Barnett. I'm in the same program as Christian. If you could not tell from my nasally drone, I am a bit under the weather right now, so please bear with me. So we're just going to let you do all the talking. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there it goes. Old man Barnett cop there. Yeah, I just got basically punched in the immune system a few days ago um maybe it was all the uh we had a lot of people over at thanksgiving and uh, who knows what it is i mean i'm just like every most average people i think i'd say every three years or so i get a bug that lays me out for a couple days maybe three or four years and then you're you know i'm already on the mend it's just one of those things that just uh, i guess is part of part of life but on a positive sense you know since we're a science podcast it is building my immune system, right? I'm generating all these fun little B cells because my immune system has been challenged and they're going to stick around. So hopefully whatever got me sick, assuming it's not a uh, flu virus, which we'll talk about during the show, I'll be protected against it in the future. So I just, it's a, I, I should be grateful that I, have, I am now protected permanently against one more antigen on this planet. <laughs> doesn't make you, doesn't being sick just make you so grateful for when you're not and you're able to breathe and not have snot coming out all the time. 
it truly does. But it did allow me to to binge watch a little Netflix yesterday while I wasn't moving. So there is it does have that positive side effect, I guess. So and you know you're getting better too when like I really lost my appetite completely, and then when you start to get hungry again, and like today around 4 p.m. I just had this insatiable uh, d- desire to eat like a mound of cinnamon French toast, <laughs> like that just locked into my brain, and I'm like I need cinnamon French toast. So. Uh, by the time I actually get around to making it in four days, I won't want it. You know, it's just one of those things. But, but um, yeah, so, yeah, we recorded live last week. Uh, hopefully, we don't do that again for a very long time. Uh, it was an unbelievable pain in the booty to edit um, from Echoes and all kinds of other fun stuff I knew would be there. Plus, it's a little weird recording with everyone. I like the comfort of my own space. I'm in my undies right now. I'm hanging out in front of a big computer screen. That's really not it's, that different from when we were all together. I was going to say. <laughs> I recall you were taking your clothes off when we were I in that did, room. <laughs> I did disrobe. It was warm up there. So did you, I mean, I know we just talked on Saturday, but have you guys done anything in the intervening days? Anything interesting? Um, I'm drinking a tasty birthday beer right now. Is this one you made? Or no, is this one no, this was a gift. It is, um, it's an aged pale ale. Um, it's a sour Belgian beer. Very tasty. Does that just mean it's old? It, it <laughs> yeah. was in my closet for 18 months. <laughs> yeah, it's super gross. Basically, sour beers are beers that have gone bad, but they are delicious. So it's got a soury taste to it. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, sour beers are weird because sometimes they'll taste kind of tangy, um, almost like a champagne kind of. Um, and other times they'll taste like a dirty dish rag, and those are pretty bad. <laughs> I uh, I never knew that, so that's I'll have to try one one of these days. That we have one of those total wines around here, and they have like hundreds and hundreds of specialty beers. So mm-hmm. we'll give it a go there. It's like a Bevmo. Do you guys have Bevmos down there? No, we do have total wine though. You have total. Must be a mm-hmm. Nevada thing. So, okay. So what about you, Christian? Um, went to see my best friend in Auburn, California yesterday. That's right. You've been out of pocket. Um. Auburn, where's that? Uh, really close to Sacramento, sort okay. of over the hill. Just a couple hours. Um, if you go over the hill and you hit the first place you find where there's a hundred thousand fast food places, that's Auburn. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Is it's after the um, after the the In and Out, right? It's right around the In and Out. The In and Out yeah, is yeah, yeah. in Auburn. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Right across the street from where I went to high school, actually. Um, Not that anyone who doesn't live around here cares, but there's an In-N-Out <laughs> burger. Like, So if you leave Reno and you're heading west towards San Francisco, which is exactly like due west of here, about three hours, three and a half hours maybe. Uh, bef- so you leave here, and if you didn't have the bright idea to get something to eat before you left Reno, you're pretty much in no man's land for a good hour, hour and a half. Uh, like literally pretty much zero options and so when you get to right down the hill and you're getting close to sacramento the first thing you hit is like a burger or like a uh, in and out burger which if you do not have the privilege of living on the west coast by many means people argue it's the greatest burger chain out there and it is great but like it's always that thing it's like oh am i gonna eat it in and out you know what i mean like should have i like waited it i don't know i'm going off on a tangent here now but i really i have struggle with that in and out (laughs) (laughs) therapy with scott barnett so um auburn fun just hanging out yep just drank a lot didn't feel good today so it's all good (laughs) 
All good in the hood. Well, you and me both feel bad, so um, there we go. Yeah. I'll just feel good for both of you guys. <laughs> While you drink your tasty beverage. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Right. Well. Nice. Shoot. Um, that's all I got. I think that's probably a good amount of banter for today. Some good banter. <laughs> some good bantering. Mm-hmm. Uh, la, la, la. How do you feel about this next part, Scott? I think you're feeling up to it. I am so feeling up to it. I'm actually very excited about a story that we're going to talk about in Science Blast! I'm going to do my sniffle pew. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> I hope I, wow, I just got a great visual of all that's not just going down the back of your throat. Thanks. Yeah. I had one of those, you know, when you're sick and you, you do the wake up in the morning and you can't breathe and mm-hmm. then you have like the first um, expunging of everything that's accumulated in your upper respiratory system for the last eight hours. Yeah, yeah. It was a very special moment today, this morning. <laughs> Did so, it kind of um, look like a fetus? Sometimes you it, get those super nasty. Like, the, like a green afterbirth. Yeah, yeah, it was just, it was all kinds of just, just inappropriate. So. Oh, Gross. Good times. Well, shoot, so many things to talk about here. Does anyone have a, a tinkling that they want to go first about some science, or shall we just roll the dice? Um, I will go first. Bees. Yeah. <laughs> I should be sure about that, but... Oh, no. Yeah. You did your own segue. I loved it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So now, explain why you're talking about bees to begin with. I have no idea. Um... <laughs> Because they're they're small and painful and and it was a listener's request like yeah. six months ago and we just I remember like a month Three ago years. saying we're never ever going to talk about it and now here we are <laughs> thank you for making me a liar Christian you're welcome um yeah it the the article that they that they sent was interesting and actually pretty cool and it had a lot of information in it so I dug in and found a lot of background and I'm going to talk about that and then we'll talk about bees and why they are or are not dying horribly fiery death of hell um so uh, back in the early 2000s there was some concern over bee colonies dying off and they weren't just dying off but they were dying off in a unique way and Normally, it's normal for bee populations to drop during the winter. Um, They reproduce rapidly in the spring, and so you usually lose um, like 20% of your bee colonies, roughly. I'm not making numbers up, but I'm rounding. Around the 20-ish percent range is normal. Um, So you do lose a lot of bees during the winter. So just having bees die during the year, especially in the cold months, isn't all that odd. What's odd is if they die in this particular way. And there are a lot of reasons why bees will abandon their colony. Um, One of those is if the queen is dead or gone, the bees will abandon it. And what you'll find is... Huh? Dude, it is. Bees are a cult of queen. 
the, the queen bee cult. Um, that's literally what they do for life. That's what, all they care about, really. Um, but hives will die if they're queenless. They're, they're not going to make food and do all this other junk for, for nothing. Um, and bees will sometimes be poisoned or get infections that can kill them in the hive, and then you'll have a hive full of dead bees. Isn't good, but um, it is it is explainable. You can say, hey, look, here's the dead bees. We can test the dead bees. We know it killed them. Some sort of mite, some sort of um, thing killed them in the hive. What's really weird is when you find a bee colony that has a queen that has both honey and bee pollen available, so food sources are are plentiful, but no bees. So you have the queen, and sometimes you have some young bees who just hatched or um, who who haven't been around very long, but you don't have any other adult bees doing the work. So the hive is just sitting there with the queen, and she's like, what the flip is going on? And so when you find all the food's intact, the queen's intact, the hive's intact, the only thing missing are the adult worker bees. That's what's called... Um, colony collapse disorder <laughs> and <laughs> sounds like something in the DM DSM right, right. <laughs> well the problem with it is that you can't the colony itself doesn't recover because without the worker bees you know humans can't go in there and do the little bee work that busy bees do so the colony basically dies and it's it's confusing and it's mysterious because a lot of the signs and symptoms that you would expect from something killing bees in their hive aren't there the queen's around everything's happy so it's it really looks like everybody just mutinied and left so queen dies colony collapses normal seed all the time queen's there saying where are all my drones they've all taken off now we're like what's going on right and particularly what you find is food sources because sometimes the food can run out i mean there's a lot of things that can happen but you've got a fully functional hive it's like going into a grocery store where all the registers are on and all the food is there and the manager's standing up front and there's no checkers they just walked out so it's almost like a bee strike but they never come back so bee strike it sounds like a great strike. 70s movie right <laughs> bee strike it's a bee exploitation film. Anyways, oh my God. so <laughs> I can't I can't help but think of the that the Wicker Man with Nicolas Cage and the bees scene every time you say bees. <laughs> and the anyway. show has reached a new low. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> really, that wasn't a new low. <laughs> that was barely off. Um, but anyways, so there were um several years where. There was a, a dramatic loss of bee colonies somewhere around 2006. And there's a, there are a lot of reasons why they thought this might have happened. Um, around Since like 1990, the, the, the colonies were stable and they were losing between 17 and 20% per year to a variety of factors, mites, disease, management, and all kinds of other stuff. The normal thing. Um, but in mid-November 2006 is when this particular disorder, the CCD, kind of first um, became prevalent. And 
going back in history and looking at some reports, it isn't something that's totally new. Um, you could actually go back to the early um, 20th century, like 1905 and so on, and find reports of people having written about bee colonies doing the same kind of thing. Um, and so during this, this year or two, um, you had a lot of losses down to like the 30% range. Okay. Um, eight year average around this time period between the 2006 to 2013 was around 29.6%. So that prompted people to coin the term begeden, which is ridiculously silly anyway. But, um, there was a lot of observation and a lot of people were throwing stones at everything that they could get their hands on, usually their pet project. So people are like, oh, it's GMOs. People are like, oh, it's pesticides. Oh, it's blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are a lot of pesticides that we have used in the past and stopped using because they were- I also heard cell phone towers. That was a big one. Oh, yeah, cell phones. I mean, any crazy thing you can come up with, somebody thought that it was killing bees you know, carbonation and soda. It's killing all the bees. So, um, but in terms of actual research, there wasn't a lot of research looking into this effect because what do you research? There's no bees. Like, you can't go in and test them. You can test the queen. You can test the hive. But, I mean, you know, you don't have a lot to go on. Because, can you be testing for viruses and bacteria and all kinds of fun stuff like that? Yeah, and those things show up from time to time but when you have a significant drop in population and it's it's related to this syndrome that's interesting like if, if you just lost a bunch of bees and there were various reasons for that um okay big deal a lot of the some of the years in that that range that i listed where it was down to like 29 percent or whatever a lot of those years were unseasonably cold which will cause bees to die more because cold kills bees. So to a degree, a lot of times it's hard to separate out without specifically going in and doing the research what is actually causing bee populations to decline during the winter months because if in one place it's mites and in another place it's colony collapse disorder and in another place it's something else, you can't say that those are all related. So what you get when you move from science and reporting to the media is you get things like, you know, this terrible bee apocalypse is coming because all these bees are dying. Um, and it must be this colony collapse disorder and so on and so forth. But when you go in and you look at the, the evidence, not necessarily true. Some of the years had were cold. Some of them were colony collapse disorder, so on and so forth. So this is a syndrome. It is something that happens. We don't know why it happens. We still but, don't know why. No. Oh, no, I want to use a really not. bad word right now. I is, I was hoping this was building up to like us finally having an answer. No, no, no. <laughs> we no. still don't they, know. Uh, yeah, that's no, we don't know. But some interesting facts are, particularly in, um, if you look at the number of total beehive colonies collectively in Europe and in the United States, they're up. So. In, two, in 1995, you're looking at beehive, about 11 million beehives, roughly. Um, and now you're looking at 12 million beehives 
in 2012 when this little chart runs out. So you're looking at a million beehive increase during what people are, time period people are referring to as the bee-geddon, right? Um, and this covers all of those years between the 2000s where the bee populations did dip. And you can even see that on some of these, these graphs. In America um, and Canada, you're really in the same boat. There's a lot of fluctuation, and it's hard to tell exactly what the mean is. There's a low point in 2006, but and in 2008. But as of 2013, there's more beehives than there were in 1995. So if you look at the graph, it just visually tells you that there's no terrible decline in bee. So there's no, there's no, this isn't an anomaly year. There's no, is there a trend? There, no. Well, yes, huh. it's up. The trend Europe, is up overall. In Europe, it is up. Um, between 1995 and 2012, I'm okay, I'm lying. Hold on, there's one spot. 1997. Between 1997 and 2012, bee populations never dipped below the previous year. All the way up to the 2006 thing, where they dipped down and then come back up. So, and then continue above to stay above. Even in that year, that 2006 and 2008-ish area, they still don't even dip below the 2000 or 1997 level. Right. So, I mean, you're still up. The whole thing. There was a going dip up. and an upward trend, and everyone had a freak out. Yeah, it, it just, it's regression to the mean is what it looks like from uh -huh. just looking at the thing. North hmm. Dakota has the highest bee colony count of all time. <laughs> so, the. Remind me not to go there. That's in 2013, <laughs> right? There's, there's more bees there than anywhere. Um, do you do you suffer from anaphylaxis, or are you just not a fan of bees? I'm just so scared of bees. <laughs> they just make me so uncomfortable. Is it the unpredictable flying, and then they have a giant like stinger that they want to poke into your eyeball at any second? Yeah, that part. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, when we, were, so, when we were in Croatia this summer, sorry, just real quick. When we were in Croatia this summer, we were on an island called Melita, which is called Honey Island because of all the bees. And it has beautiful hiking, but I just, I couldn't do it. Anytime we tried to, tried to set out on a trail, there were just so many clouds of bees just hovering around the trails. I, I just couldn't, you were couldn't handle it. You were beside yourself <laughs> with fear? Oh, behave yourself. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so. Well, that was a very sweet story, Christian. That's not the uh, story they wanted me to oh. report on. That's the background, <laughs> suckers. Okay. Oh, jeez. Okay. I told you this was going to be long. I told you this was long two weeks ago, and you're like, ah, it'll be fine. I'm like, no, it's long. <laughs> well, no, I think so. what I said was, huh, maybe we can find a way to make it a 15-minute story. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I said it would be fine. No, Sorry, it, go no, ahead. That's fine. I, I didn't do that. So, anyway. Um, so, the article that the person sent to you, um, whose name I don't know because I don't listen properly, the article that they sent was about a Harvard study. And there's this big thing right now about this Harvard study. And you know, I love to talk about bad science. Um, and this guy named Lou, L-U, I'm just going to call him Dr. Lou because I was too lazy to memorize his first name. He did several studies trying to demonstrate by his own admission, he was trying to demonstrate that um, neocorticoid, I think is what they're called, could be mispronouncing that um but this particular type of pesticide was responsible for 
this colony collapse disorder. Um, Neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids. They're they're like nicotine. Probably with a steroid backbone or something. That's interesting. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. So. Um. So, anyways, he puts out these papers that this. Um, they're called neonics. Is the shortened version of it? I don't know. But what's called the pesticides? Because that's what we're talking about. And he published a Harvard study, and you have all of this um, media explosion over it. New Harvard study proves why bees are all disappearing, which we've already established all the bees aren't disappearing. Harvard University scientists have proved that two widely used um, pesticides harm bee colonies. Um, Neonicotinoid insecticide impairs winterization, leading to bee colony collapse, Harvard study says, blah, blah, blah. So these are all the headlines that were put out. Um, And... And that's sort of disheartening because, first of all, um, we've established that that this isn't necessarily the problem, and it's kind of weird that this person would come out with this study and say, oh, this is the problem, even though that problem doesn't exist. So when somebody dug into his papers, what they found was some bad science. And I, loving to talk about bad science, am just going to talk about a little of the bad science, and then I will relinquish control of this podcast back to Scott so that he can talk for a long time. Okay. Um, in 2012, Lou published a paper where he spent um, four weeks of his four weeks studying the effect of one of these pesticides from this group, um, imidacloprid. We'll just call it pesticide. Um, but he was feeding bees these this pesticide trying to figure out if they were dying because of this pesticide and three weeks into the testing he used the concentration that was considered normal for bees to experience in the field so what you would call the correct um, concentration for some reason, after three weeks into the fourth week, he upped that by 40 times for the last, um, I'm sorry, he did four weeks with the low dose and then nine weeks of 40 times the dose that they would ever encounter in the wild. And the question, why did that? Why did he do that, has no answer. He will not answer why he did that. Nobody knows why he did that. But it effectively killed all of the bees. So then he published a paper this this drug is killing kill the bees. bees. It's like when they give they they say that you know whatever artificial sweetener causes cancer, and then you look at the study and they gave a dose to mice that would be the equivalent of, of a, a mouse drinking like six hundred and like eleven <laughs> right. sodas a day for right. four years. You know what I mean? Right. What's really fascinating about that is that during those first four weeks. The colony health metric that he picked actually increases in proportion with the dose he was giving them. So the longer he fed them this at the quote-unquote correct dose, the healthier they got. So then he ups it to 40 times and they all die. Yeah, that's a huge increase. I mean, it's natural for a lot of studies, at least especially in in vitro assays, to increase the dose until you hit your you find your kill curve, so to speak. You know what I mean? You do this all the time. Um, yeah. 
but just to do two doses, a high level for or an anticipated level in the real population, and then something astronomical like that doesn't really show anything. He should have it stepped it up more sh- gradually. And is sh- if you double or triple what is naturally found in the environment, that's fine. I don't see any problem with it. Ten times is starting to be suspect. Forty is like you didn't really prove anything. Right. You, you proved that you poisoned the bees to death because anything at 40, if you poured 40 times the amount of water on them, they would drown. Like, right. It, you know. So then another paper that he published later on, he monitored 18 hives and he fed them high fructose corn syrup laced with these same pesticide groups for 13 weeks, which is long because bees usually don't feed in a field for more than two weeks. Six of the 12 colonies that he fed them to ended up showing substantial deaths over the winter, as did one of the six control colonies. Unfortunately, he never tested for pathogens and dismissed all the other potential explanations. Um, And so those two combined studies are really all of the hype that's surrounding this, and and they don't hold up. Hmm. Um, Even worse than that... (laughs) The last thing is that his criteria for saying this was CCD, because he was very specifically saying this is CCD caused. His criteria for saying it was CCD, there's five things that we talked about. Um, If you separate all the details out, there's five things that are scientifically make this CCD. Um, And he was only using two of them. So sudden loss of adult bees and... um, a specific mite was not present. Those are the two right. criteria. He completely ignored whether or not there were healthy bees growing up. He totally ignored whether or not there was a presence of a queen. Um, right. So he just really limited his inclusion criteria. Right. That, so just it, it really feels like, and he even said that he was doing activist science, that he wanted to find this answer. And he did. And it's basically junk science. So the moral of the story, kids, is don't do junk science. Good there times. There you go. <coughs> Yeah, that's uh, I mean, this happens pretty commonly. Um, and it came out of Harvard, which is you know, no place is immune to bad science. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely not. So, um, cool. Thanks, Christian. Awesome. Um, Carolina. So y- the only tidbit you gave me when I asked what you're talking about is resistant starch, and I don't know if you were intentionally being coy with a lack of information or if I was supposed to know what that meant and I'm just ignorant. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what, what the general uh, population or uh, our, our listeners know about the word resistant starch, if it Is means anything to them. Is common within your field? Yeah, fairly. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like all, all the dietitian uh, food shows that we go to, resistant starch has kind of been this uh, this concept in food that's that's been uh, very popular. Um, resistant starch is basically uh, like a, a newer f- type of dietary fiber. Um, so fiber basically um, is any kind of plant material that you can't digest and is generally classified into two types, either uh, soluble fiber or insoluble fiber. So um, insoluble fiber um, is the kind that you're that you can't digest with your human digestive enzymes. Um, so basically passes through, um, because we're not cellulose. able to, yeah, Plants basically cellulose, cellulose. There are other ones too. There's chitin, hemicellulose, lignin, xanthin. Um, mm. those are the other water insoluble f- ones. I think a lot of those are from bacteria, aren't they? 
Xanthan. Uh, yes, that one is is produced um, by bacteria from okay. from sugar substrates. But a lot of the other um, insoluble fibers are are made from like fruit, vegetables, uh, cereals, barley, wheat, rye, oats. Um, and so the water insoluble dietary fibers are, are are healthy because they basically help you bulk up your poop. They um, hold a lot of water and mm. help help things move more quickly through your digestive tract. Um, whereas the water soluble fibers are very helpful with lowering cholesterol because they they bind um, bile acids, making them less likely to um, go back to your um, go back through your circulatory system. Hmm. Um, the, so basically the way that water soluble or soluble fibers work is that they, um, they make everything more viscous in your gut. Um, and so generally I've, I've always thought of fiber as basically these two types, but there's like a third type of, of dietary fiber that's this resistant starch. And I guess it's more similar probably to the water insoluble type because it's resistant to human digestion and it basically feeds your bacteria. And, um, it's a it's a pretty cool type of fiber because it uh, it helps to to lower the glycemic index of food, so it has less of an effect on your blood sugar response and insulin release. And the way that resistant starches work is um, basically they feed your bacteria, and then um, the bacteria turn this resistant starch into short chain fatty acids, which is the main nutrient source for uh, colon cells. So it actually helps protect your epithelial. Um, your, your colon lining, and it also um, pr- it increases the amount of bacteria that you have in your gut. Uh, so oh, it actually okay. increases bacterial mass, and it specifically increases the amount of the lactobacillus and uh, what's that other one called? With uh, So you can eat milk without pooping? Yes, um, yes, and the, what is it, the bifidobacterium. Um, so it increases the population and mass of, uh, of those two so um, these starches aren't necessarily going to be absorbed and and highly available to you, but mm-hmm. they do maintain your colorectal health. I just wanted to say rectal. <laughs> yes, exactly. Although probably didn't affect rectal health at all. I don't know. It was completely Probably does. I mean, then you don't have to strain the rectum. I don't know. Everything passes through more easily. <laughs> oh, I just snotted a little. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> so anyway, um, so so um, the the main source of resistant starch is uh, are beans and legumes. Um, so raw dried legumes have about twenty to thirty percent um, of their weight as resistant starch, but when you cook them, that actually decreases down to maybe about five percent of their dry weight. Um, but that's still and we all high. love dried raw legumes. Those are delicious. <laughs> Sprinkle a little on your pancakes. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess if you use bean flour and then just eat it raw, I don't know. Is there bean flour? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can get like garbanzo bean flour. But as soon as you cook it, you're going to lower the amount of resistant starch in it. So it sounds like it's pretty sensitive to heat and you break down quite a bit of it. But uh, But what's interesting is with like all of these resistant starches, if you you cook something and then you allow it to cool overnight, um, it'll cause some of those like starches to recrystallize. Um, It's a process called retrogradation, and that actually increases the resistant starch again. 
Mmm, cold morning beans. My favorite. It's like every time you heat them up, anytime you get it to a form that is palatable, it all of a sudden becomes worthless as a dietary supplement. I know it's so frustrating because they, they actually have these really delicious uh, bean chips at the store now that I've seen. They're called beanitos. <laughs> and so they're they're a little higher in uh, in fiber than, than other types of chips. 5% is better than nothing. But since they're anything that's puffed and, you know, processed like that is not going to be nearly right. as healthy as the the raw dry form yeah um, but and anyway so so beans are, are definitely much higher in this resistant starch than uh like potatoes white bread and pastas um and these resistant well, if i've learned anything about the healthy. dietary industry someone's going to turn this into an ultra pure extract and tell you to eat seven gallons of it a day so to lose weight has anyone <laughs> done that yet as far oh, as you yes, know yes yeah actually okay. that, so so that's like all these food shows they're not like trying to give you beans or anything they're basically um selling these different products that are like uh added have your you can fruit put smoothie your and add the bean extract to it and now your fruit smoothie is going to be like healthy for you exactly. yeah it's all a big load of hooey yep but uh yeah, yeah I've, I've cooked with resistant starch it's basically like a resistant starch flour and you replace 10 percent of the regular flour and whatever you're making with uh-huh. this resistant starch stuff you don't really notice the difference in taste yeah, if you're doing something subtle like that, I'm I'm not against it. It's just the, it's this: you don't, you no longer have to eat beans. You no longer have to eat the whole food from which it came. You can just eat the supplemented, ultra extracted version of it, which we've shown time and time again is not, not conducive to a good and to a good healthy individual. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. It's actually pretty interesting reading about this. I didn't realize that fiber is not considered an essential macronutrient. That's not. I mean, huh, it's obviously very, very that? healthy for you, and you know, any pretty much any health professional would recommend that you include fiber in your diet, but it's not considered essential. I imagine. I mean, essential from a dietary standpoint, I imagine they mean that you literally will not die <laughs> if you don't get it. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with actually like promoting someone to live beyond fifty-two. Um, indeed. Well, cool. Is that is that what you got? Yeah, that would be pretty good. Um, I think we, we'll probably revisit fiber in the future because it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, but that's all I've got for today. It is super fascinating. Thank you, Carolina. Um, I'm, you didn't segue. I didn't. You kind of you, you sort of missed that, so I'm happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're more than welcome to segue from Ooh. beans and toots and amylos and starches to. Thank you so much. Um, I literally have nothing. <laughs> My brain is so fried right now. Let me let me do one for you. What are, what are you talking okay. about? We're talking about uh, flu virus. Okay, I got nothing. <laughs> just, just go for it. All right. Well, if you're sick of hearing me talk... Too bad. We're talking about flu. All right. So uh, my story is actually an update on a former story I talked about here. And uh, it was published just this Wednesday, hot off the press, as in, yes, no, today is Wednesday. Hey, Literally today or maybe a week ago. I don't remember when I pulled the story. Uh, but it's very fresh. Uh, and the story is in Science Translational Medicine, a very fine journal. And the title of the article is Immune History Profoundly Affects Broadly Protective B-Cell Response to Influenza. Which is descriptive but confusing if you're not really into the immune thing here. So let's talk about it. So the article talks about how, you know, if you remember on episode 100, I talked about um, the possibility of making a universal vaccine 
to the flu virus rather than having to get a new one every single year. And it turns out that this study found that it's going to be really challenging to do this because our immune system does not want to make the antibodies against the stock portion of hemagglutinin. Now, if you just got lost there, don't worry. I'll explain it. Um, let's back the train up for just a second here. So the study started out with a when a group of researchers led by Patrick Wilson, he's at the University of Chicago, decided to study the natural innate immune response of 21 people that were exposed to that big 2009 uh, swine flu epidemic, the H1N1. And they wanted to see how their bodies coped with this particularly virulent strain of the virus. And the researchers found uh, or they specifically decided to look at the patient's B cells, and your B cells are what you make antibodies. Oh, I could have segued from the B story with B cells. It was a natural, organic segue. I blew it. Oh, wait. I'll do it in post. Okay. So they looked at B cells. Um, uh-oh. Carolina? I am here. Oh, you're there. Sorry, I thought you dropped off there. Okay. Um, so... Uh, they looked at the B cells, and these are make make the antibodies. Sorry. Uh, so with the flu virus, with the flu virus, antibodies bind to the that actual virus, and they act like a beacon, like a little flashing beacon for much more aggressive white blood cells to come along and destroy the virus. So that's how your body knows to destroy it. It's because the antibodies have bound to the flu virus. So back to this whole hemagglutinin thing, right? Now you may or may not remember that. This earlier story I talked about in terms of creating a universal flu vaccine, people are getting really excited about it. And the stale might go somewhere, but this kind of takes a little of the air out of it. Um, the outside of a flu virus is coated with what looks like this infinite field of like dandelions. They are primarily, these dandelions are primarily something called a protein called hemagglutinin. There's also neuraminidases, but primarily hemagglutinin. Um, it's this fluffy dandelion head of the hemagglutin that sticks out furthest away from the virus. And it's also prone to rapid and regular mutations, which is why we need a new flu vaccine every year. So your body makes antibodies against the head of these hemagglutinins. Um, but the following flu season, that the, the head has changed so much that your old antibodies, which are just waiting around to get back in the game to kill more flu viruses, well, they don't recognize the mutated hemagglutin, so time to make a new flu vaccine. Great. So the grand idea of using this lifelong flu vaccine was to grind up and separate out just the stem portions of the hemagglutinin. Why the stems? Because the stems don't tend to mutate very much over time. And you can inject those in your body, at least is the theory. Um, it's more complex than this, and you can go listen to episode 100 if you want more information on that. But you inject them into your body, and the idea is that your body's going to, the B cells are going to make a whole bunch of antibodies that recognize the stem of the hemagglutinin, which doesn't mutate very much. Voila, you're going to be protected against all viruses or all flu viruses going into the future because, uh, because you have the antibodies waiting around to kill them as soon as they get in your body. Well, as it turns out, your body's not a huge fan of this idea. Uh, Wilson, the lead author here, and his colleagues found out that the participants in the study, their immune system naturally already made these stock sticking type antibodies and they could seek out and bind to tons of other flu variants. So your body's already doing what people thought would be a great idea to do. Your body does make antibodies against the stock portion. So what we need to, um, so the question is, is why do we need a new flu shot each year if your body's already doing this because you have antibodies to the stock section that doesn't mutate? 
Well, those stock-seeking antibodies, it turns out, are not very good at doing their jobs. And the lab head antibodies got a very firm grip on the targeted hemagglutinin, right? They, it's, it's called a, a binding affinity. They had a very high binding affinity for the head of the, of the hemagglutinin. And the stock antibodies did not bind very well. And if you, um, and if your antibody and you want to target a virus for destruction, you need to be able to hold on to whatever you're trying to target for destruction very, very well, or else these killer T cells that are going to come find the beacon, which is the antibody, and kill it, they won't be able to find it because the thing that the antibody just isn't sticking it to very good. So the other problem is that the head on the head antibodies also tended to be more accurate at targeting the um, just the hemagglutinin head, while the stock antibodies sometimes targeted random things like double-stranded DNA. That's a bad thing here. You know, at, at best, um, if it could affect transcription of some proteins, um, but at worst, it could be some sort of autoimmune disease affected by this. I'm not too worried about that so much because double-stranded DNA doesn't exist in great quantities outside of your cell membrane um, extracellularly. So it's probably a pretty low risk there. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter because the stock binding antibodies just don't bind very well. Now, because of the lower efficiency and accuracy of these stock ones, the immune system appeared to basically ignore the stack on it, stack antibodies over time, and they preferentially activated B cells that produce the head antibodies when we got a new flu each year here. So they further looked at the older people in the study versus the younger, and those who were older who had ex been exposed to a lot more flu viruses over the years produced even fewer of these stock antibodies than the younger participants. In other words, your body over time, after getting inundated with flu year over year over year, starts realizing, hey, I'm making these antibodies against the stock, and they're really not working so hot, so I'm just going to focus on the thing that works really, really well, and I'm going to make these ones for the the for the head of the hemagglutin, even though I have to make new ones every single year because they just work better. And this is called a memory bias with the B cells. And it goes to show you that, you know, even if we injected a whole bunch of these stocks by themselves, which was the plan for this universal vaccine, it probably wouldn't change the behavior of the B cells very much because they would just go back to making the head ones each year uh, because they love to bind to the heads there because they're so much better at it. So, and this makes sense from an evolutionary sense. Your body treats each antigen kind of like its own thing. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have grand plans about the future, you know, other than to keep the antibodies around from previous antigen exposures, just in case it sees them again. So, um, so it's really just kind of wasted effort for to make these things that don't bind very well. And as your immune system matures, it realizes there's not a lot of point to it. So they don't do it. So, for the foreseeable future, um, you'll have to stick to getting stuck by your <laughs> physician. Boom! Boom. <laughs> that's, that's what I got. <laughs> Man, this one we thought we outsmarted things. I know. Well, yeah, we it, nature always wins. And it seemed like such a logical, wonderful, like, route to go. Like, just put the stocks in there. This will be great. And your body will do it. But your body just, your body is incapable of making really excellent antibodies against the stock and that's kind of like where we're stuck because if the body doesn't make it then there's no point you know what i mean the whole point of injecting you with these stocks was to let your immune system take over and make wonderful antibodies forever but it doesn't work that way so say la vie bummers indeed and if you're new to the podcast if you are from dr domke's class um 
and a lot of that didn't make sense you will be taking immunology in a couple years immunology is freaking amazing it's a really cool class you'll love it and uh if you're pre-med you just have to take it so uh <laughs> you're taking it one way or another so i did have one more story about spider webs but we'll push that off no need no need um so spider webs next week christian copley sam have you returned from your absence yeah a long time ago oh great well ready for our game let's do beta sandwich science history Oh, no, we don't have to pew there. <laughs> <coughs> all right, so this week's science history game is all about the history of flavor and taste. Flavor. Can you give a, a review to our listeners at home how the game works? Oh, sure, yes. So basically, I will give our contestants, Christian and Scott, three different events that happened in history related to science, and they will have to correctly put them in order and give me their best guess of the year, just in case they guess the same order. And whoever gets the closest or whoever gets it in the correct order will win a point. A point. A point. <laughs> uh, I'm excited. So this is about labor? As no, in no, like... no, flavor. Oh, flavor. I'm like, labor, sweet. <laughs> I got this one. All right. Flavor. Okay. I'm excited. So here we go. So put these in order. Um, one event is the year in which the umami flavor, which is savory flavor associated with MSG, was uh, first discovered. Okay. Um, you also have to determine when uh, odor receptors were found in the brain. Mm. And I want you to tell me when the tongue map of flavors was developed. Uh, the whole sweet, sour. Yes, the sweet on salty. the tip of your tongue. Bitter towards the back. Okay. So. Which is BS, by the way. That thing's been disproven, just so you know. I didn't know that. (laughs) Who goes first? Who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. All right. Um, So, because Scott gets mad when I write this stuff down, I'm just going to um, try to wing it from memory. And if I forget, then you're going to have to remind me. Okay. Um. So I think that the umami is the most recent. Okay, give me a year. I think uh, I'm going to say 2000. All right. Um, there was a lot of hot talk about that recently, and I don't know if it yeah. came around for a second go and it was popular then, or if it was just discovered for the. That's a really good argument there. And then um, I'm going to say that the brain. Wait, I got to go first. Oh, I got, well, I got to do one now. I thought we just did so. them all three and then... Oh, well, that's normally how Carolina... Okay, you can do all three if you want. Okay. So I'm going to say that the tongue could not have come before the brain. So I'm going to say that the brain was the oldest, the tongue was next, and then the umami. So umami, tongue, brain. Umami, Wait, tongue, brain. going backwards, right? Going backwards. Yeah, umami yeah, is yeah, the yeah. oldest. Okay, so the, okay. All right. So uh, I, I disagree substantially on this. So... I think that the tongue one is going to be the oldest because this is something that could be readily tested through observation from millennia ago. And I bet it's pretty old, I'm going to guess, that people were able to kind of sense this out a little bit here. So I'm going to say that's the oldest. The middle one, I'm going to say, is going to be the umami. 
because that's an that's a nice uh, uh, it's a newer flavor and I remember a lot of hoopla about it around the early 2000s I kind of remember this thing coming in but I don't I just feel like it's been around longer than that. we've been making like soy sauce for like 6,000 years if you go like back to China they had to have latched on to the idea of umami way before everyone else. And I feel like that's been in the literature and the tongue one, you're talking about an actual like neuronal brain connection here with the with the flavors. And so to me, that seems it's like it's going to be the most recent. So I oldest to newest is tongue taste umami and then the tongue brain one. All right, Scott. I won again! Yay! Ah, did I get them all right? Yeah. That's cheating. Oh, bless, bless my heart. <laughs> you earned it. Hope that makes you feel a little bit better. So here about the years though. So the tongue one, I'm gonna guess, is like many hundreds of years old. Um, tongue one's actually 1901. That's what I meant. 1901. <laughs> yeah, many, many, many decades, decades, many many decades ago. old. You can go listen to the tape. I said decades. Yes. Okay, now umami, um, I, I see where, where Christian came from by saying 2000, because there was um, a, a receptor in the, the brain discovered for umami in 2000, but it's actually been known to be a flavor with a receptor on the tongue since 1908. Wow. And uh, an odor receptor in the brain was 1991. Oh. Interesting. Yes. So, um, Christian. Yes. I have some unpleasant news. <laughs> I do have the chart here this week with me, and you are currently two and seven, um, or two and five. You've played seven times and you've won twice, which gotcha. means you a winning percentage of point two nine percent. Thirty percent, yay! We happen to have a new leader in the house today, <gasps> Carolina. Oh. If you no 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 oh come on <laughs> you, your hopes are still dashed <laughs> Carolina you can take a backseat because I am now in the lead with sixty percent of all played wins so um, wow but uh, I will take the reins back next week and we'll let you um, we'll let you have a chance to to get another victory and then we can have Dell do or Christian do it after that if that works for everyone excellent all right sounds good, good times so. Well, I hope we have lots of new, young, fresh listeners. Oh, hey. <laughs> wildly Sorry. inappropriate, Carolina. You're a working professional now. You can't refer to undergraduates that way. Sorry, guys. <laughs> God, we have high school listeners, too. That makes me so uncomfortable. You're going to, um, yeah, you're going to have a, a, a the, C, or the CIA is going to be looking at your internet browsing history now. They're going to find, like, she sure Googles alcohol and beer a lot and young, healthy children or whatever you said. <laughs> young, vibrant children. I'm say I said fresh listeners. <laughs> I don't think, I don't know if that's any better. Don't rewind this. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. Hooray. Hooray. Bye. 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 Oh man. Um well, let me hit stop here. <laughs>